All right, this is Finchley Place. I'm Crispy Chicken. We have suspended reason as usual, but we also have a very special guest, Jacob Clifton, who I guess the way I'll describe him is one of my favorite describers of microsociologies in pop TV. Wow, hello. <laughs> I, uh, I think I encountered Jacob maybe four, four-ish years ago. Um, a friend of mine, a blogger named The Sublemon, uh, mentioned how great his recaps were. And I was working through Farscape at the time and kind of jumped into them from there. And they were just so wonderful. Um, and I've been reading them ever since. So I'm excited to talk to him today about Gossip Girl, uh, which I think is the main topic. There's uh, the new reboot uh, is out. and But we also want to talk about old episodes. So we'll be going through all of it. Cool. So do you guys want to just get started by talking about the new episode and like kind of how we feel about that? That seems kind of <laughs> a natural thing that's uh, starting us all off here and why we decided to come back to Gaza Girl. Yeah, Jacob, do you have any first impressions, big picture thoughts before we get into more nitty gritty? Um, it's It's been almost a week now, so it's had some time to settle. I think it's pretty exciting. There's definitely a side of it that's a lot more knowing, I think, and a lot more aware of maybe just the previous series as an artifact, maybe not itself so much moving forward, but definitely of the previous series. And I, I don't know, it, it felt good. There's a way to do that that is probably pretty smarmy and uh, pretty pretty winky, but it, it felt it felt a lot less that way and a lot more like authentically trying to respond to itself, which I was surprised and, and pleased by. I love the uh, Nate Archibald is one of the famous alumni of <laughs> Constant Billard. Yeah. Or I guess it's not Constant Billard. He goes to St. Jude's, right? That's the the carving. Yeah. Yeah. I vastly agree with that, though. I'm curious what you think about the contention, which I hold and I've, I've heard a few other people voice that somehow the first 15 minutes were kind of trash. And then it's like right after that, probably in the bathroom scene of the two sisters, there's just this moment where things turn to being actually about social dynamics in a way that I just don't know really what was going on before that. Do you agree or do you think we're just all seeing that? No, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but because uh, I, I, I came into it, you know, sort of resolved to be excited no matter what. I, but I, I would agree with that for sure. It's definitely, you're not, you're not getting a whole lot of soul, um, anything beyond signifiers and sort of signs signposts of where we're going to go until that point and then it becomes a story that bathroom scene was so good i mean i definitely i think it there was kind of it really got it was, maybe some of the worst scenes i thought in the episode uh came right before it and i was kind of on this downswing like oh man like i don't know about this this app <laughs> and uh and then there's that just that amazing scene where you've just you know you've built up to that point expecting that there's going to be this kind of showdown you know with the new girl um and the kind of you know the queen the the queen bee of of the new generation mm -hmm. and it does end up that way but it's a lot more complicated than that and to see this kind of subversion where actually they've been you know instant messaging for years and are you know something close to best friends or uh you know real sisters um was such a surprise and such a nice moment and i'm so glad they went that direction instead of it kind of just being this uh petty petty showdown of of gals who don't know each other at all right agreed and uh, the other thing that i liked and I i'd be curious um if jacob has any takes on this like i just felt the fact that it happened in a bathroom and the mirrors and the way they kept referencing themselves in the mirrors and the debrief with oneself after the new sister leaves you know um looking in the mirror i just felt like there was this incredible acknowledgement as to how much people are seeing their own reflections, right? How much people are checking how they look all the time in this way that didn't feel over the top, but like totally got across this message of this, you know, Instagram influencer. And that's kind of her story, right? Right. No, absolutely. I think there's a lot of them looking at each other, period. And just which of which was surprising the amount of sort of silent time that the show spent on, particularly Julian looking at her sister and, and sort of drinking it in and the, you know, the messages or images of, of like their mother. And I think having them up against mirrors, both sort of ends of that transformation of the show, I think is really interesting because before that you've got, you've got them in their singular mirrors and it's not at all, it's not at all the same and it doesn't feel as grounded. But then in the bathroom scene that we're talking about, there's like, I don't know, I keep going back to, this isn't exactly 
and I'm realizing it's not it's not exactly during that scene, but the sort of the way that she touches her sister's scarf is that in the bathroom when she sort of fetishizes the scarf? No, that's right. I think that's right after um, in the kind of uh, like a uh, pack scene, wolf pack scene where they're yeah. all on the stairs, right? Right. Yeah, because she's going to put her in the Instagram story. That's right. Um, <clears throat> I, I think coming at it from from that angle and from the angle of sort of those are those are the only unmediated images that they have as well, right? The mirror, the mirror images. Everything else is sort of like we're giving our our best our best self, but in this checking how we how we look sort of as objectively as possible, I think is a very different situation. Yeah, I totally agree. I I mean, I couldn't help but think I just recently watched the season two finale of True Blood, which is uh, another series that Jacob's written recaps on. Um, and uh, I don't know if, if you remember this at all, Jacob, but so basically, you know, near the end, spoilers, uh, Bill proposes to Suki and she kind of just panics because, you know, it's been such a crazy season. Um, you know, all her friends have been controlled by, you know, a main ad of Dionysus. Uh, it's been <laughs> been pretty chaotic lately. And so she kind of just flees and panics and she doesn't know what to think. Um, she kind of stammers an excuse and she runs off into the bathroom immediately after Bill's proposal. And there's this amazing moment where she's kind of in the bathroom and she's looking down at the sink and in the mirror, you can see, you know, the tears streaming down her cheek. And, and then she kind of like tries the ring on and she looks up into the mirror and she sees herself with the ring and, you know, her kind of, her facial expression slowly changes into a smile as she kind of comes into herself. And I feel like when people think of like mirror scenes in television and film, um, you know, they always think of the, uh, is it American Psycho, right? Where he's, you know, flexing in the mirror while he has sex. And it's just this kind of mm-hmm. symbol of like unbridled narcissism. And he's all about this kind of surface image. And that's real too. But I think that, you know, normal people, by which I mean, you know, not psychopaths, um, have a more complicated relationship with their external image um, and how that kind of appearance and that kind of lens to some kind of objective or, or third person view um, is always kind of interfacing with the first person view. For sure. Absolutely. I think um, there was some stuff you wanted to kind of, I, I, I saw that you had some serious preparation suspended. So you want to get into the meat? Cause I think that's a, the kind of perfect introduction to our frame. Cool. All right. Well, I think we should just, you know, for, for listeners should talk a little bit of background about, you know, your recapping, um, probably most, you know, young people in 2021 might not even have heard of TV without pity, even though it was mm-hmm. such an important website 10, 15 years ago. And you wrote a ton of recaps for them. I mean, I, I'm kind of continually floored by the amount of writing you did. And maybe you have some kind of back of the envelope, uh, ballpark figure of page count or word count from all that. But you did, I think, <laughs> a couple dozen shows. And maybe at some points we're doing, you know, multiple shows a week, turning in recaps. I don't know what your kind of schedule was like in terms of turning them in or how you managed to write that many words that quickly. And But I'd love to hear about all that background. <laughs> I think I think the um, the biggest number I think was uh, I want to say four in a week. And the way that we did it was to write something short on a twelve-hour turnaround, just to sort of give like a rec- what what we call recap now. Basically, is like just a, sh- a short like a, a, a like a page or so, and then uh, four and a half days later, and the the founders of the site were always very particular about about us getting them in on time. They had a definite vision of what they wanted. Uh, something longer. Mine were sort of famously long. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like twenty to thirty pages, typically, right for an episode. Yeah, yeah. I had a lot to say um, about myself and about the about the show, and uh, it was definitely. I I kind of look back a little a little bit shocked by by the amount of work that that went into it now that just seems like a lot of work uh (laughs) but at the time i i I was just i was in love with the with the show so and 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 with sort of being part of that community and uh that made it seem like not work i mean you know they would people would always say you get to watch tv for a living and I, I had never really, really caught into that 
reading of it just because it felt like the actual watching was the smallest part of the the hours that went into it. Like I would, you know, I would have it there to to reference, but I generally would would watch it, you know, just like once or twice, and then get get into it using subtitles, like subtitle files, and and writing from that. So as to have a better a better idea of sort of where we were in the story instead of just, or else I would just stay on one image for, you know, pages and pages, which I also did. But, but uh, that, that's, the, that's the nuts and bolts of it. I, when I was doing, when I was collecting them and rewriting them for, uh, for, my, for myself and for my own release, I counted up, I think, at least a half a million words on Battlestar, at least a half a million words on Pretty Little Liars. I don't remember counting them up for Gossip Girl, but uh, I do remember being exhausted just by the thought. Uh, what uh, what were some of your favorite shows to recap in terms of which ones did you feel like, you know, separate from the viewing, but in the actual writing part that kind of had the most meat or um, that, you know, you really could dig into and the more that, you know, you worked on it um, or thought about it, the more you got out of it? Uh, Definitely Gossip Girl. Uh, I would say that's that's chief among them. It's it's the it's the writing that I remember the best as far as where I was and what I was doing in my life. Otherwise, just because it it was a very strong sort of mix of the interpretation and and the sort of global scale that the show was at for those first few seasons. That it's just it's a very clear memory for me. I really loved writing about True Blood. Um, Farscape, which you mentioned, I, I really loved writing about Farscape just because there's so much going on at all times, emotionally and symbolically, on that show that it was sort of a recapper's dream. Um, and, I, and, and not too distant from Gossip Girl in a lot of ways. I mean, Gossip Girl is basically science fiction. Uh when you when you remove almost the entirety of Maslow's pyramid and you're just dealt with you know these sort of universal emotions and deep needs, then you you're not in a place that's recognizably human. Um, and you know, so obviously, what was good about the show was was putting real characters and sort of real character moments into a situation that was so patently unreal which makes it not that different from Scott Farscape where some of the characters were actual Muppets, but still had to, uh, had to bring that sort of emotional reality to it. So that's a, a fascinating description. And it actually brings up this question I was hoping to ask later, but I'll, I'll just jump to it now, um, which is, so my kind of contention about shows like Gossip Girl, the way you're describing that, you know, essentially kind of constrain or stretch over some aspect of human reality so that it's so enlarged and magnified and distorted that you're looking mm. at something that resembles humans, but it's not humans in their in their actual detail, or it's a very detailed part of something that's usually you don't have high resolution of. Right. Um, and I guess my kind of pet theory is that we do this because we purposely want a global story that is very far away from our lives. So we don't start confusing ourselves by saying, oh, this wouldn't happen in this way and this wouldn't happen in that way. But whose medium and short-term interactions, you know, the interactions in a scene or the medium arc of like how these interactions add up should end up paralleling our, our lives. And that's where we kind of get the meat. And that's what I always kind of found fascinating. I, I was introduced to um, your writing by Suspended um, and uh, I've just been catching up on it lately. And that's what I find really fascinating about it that it, to me, captures all of these micro interactions, which are where I think the actual parallels happen. And I'm curious, do you agree with that? Um, and and kind of like, how do you see those things adding up? Since you say that Gossip Girl is science fiction, I do. I like that. I like that very much. It sort of brings to mind uh, those hyper microscopic uh, nature films of like of bugs or. You know, of of, very, of things on a very small scale that that are blown up to the point where they sort of make sense and in, in our situation, I re I like that a lot. I think that uh, totally fits. But my my interest in it was always in sort of taking those moments as they were given to us, 
and trying to be honest about that, but then also sort of bridging the gap of the more fantastical elements and, and sort of, you know, bringing, pretending that there, for example, was a consistency of character uh, across, across writers and across episodes and across seasons in order to say like, but it's interesting that Serena would do such and such because we might think from season one, she would do this, but actually what we're seeing is, you know, a, a new interpretation or something, just ways of, of bringing it back home and, and bringing it back in to be, if the show couldn't be a consistent or a discrete sort of entity that at least the recaps could be, and that, that it would make an emotional sense and an emotional through line um, that sometimes, and, and not to single out Gossip Girl at all, but that sometimes shows just by the nature of production don't always have that, well, that you, they're not able to consciously be on that edge at all times. You know what I'm, do you know what I mean? Like the, the no, totally, yeah, a- absolutely. To be blowing up those details at all times when they've got like an entire show to do. So I, I really enjoyed it from that perspective as well. Absolutely. And and one last question before I, I hand it back to Suspended is just, I mean, so I, I really find this interesting. And I guess the way I view you as bridging that gap and creating this consistency is often by including the viewer as a character, right? You're often saying, oh, from this, we're supposed to know X, right? Mm-hmm. And so it feels like that's kind of where the consistency comes from between the gaps that feel inhuman, where it's like, well, ultimately, this is a message to the viewer and, and you're meant to be encapsulated in this world. And sometimes we have to break the, the internal dynamics of the world in order to show you something. Do you, yeah. do you agree with that reading? Oh, absolutely. I like that. I like that a lot. I, uh, I mean, I, I pretty much want to get into these kind of micro interactions and dynamics. Um, uh, we can kick it off with the, the necktie scene that you talk about between Eric and Asher. But just really quick before we do that, uh, I think I was reading in one of the recaps, uh, you mentioned that in kind of a meta note that you'd actually stumped hard to get the Gossip Girl assignment in the first place. And I was curious mm. what got you interested um, and what that looked like. I read the pilot and I could feel these sort of marketing gears grinding and getting ready to do to blow something up. Um, which, as as part of being you know being a TV critic for your actual job, there's a lot of sort of reading those tea leaves. And so, I think for whatever reason, it wasn't necessarily on the radar for us as a group. But I felt between the between the massive marketing push that I saw coming and the amount of, of attention and energy that I'd seen spent on the books, um, I just I, I felt like it was good for the site. I mean, I, I would have pushed for it had I not been assigned the show. I would have pushed for it had I hated the show. It just seemed like the, the right thing to do. And then eventually I got some screeners before and that just I was I was done. I was. If, if they hadn't agreed to it, then I, th- I, th- I believe I sort of vaguely remember some, some cards being pulled. So I'm like, well, I'll do this for you. If I get gossip girl, like that kind of, I'll do, I'll do the Paula Abdul show. If, if I can do gossip girl, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but it did get to that point where I just felt really strongly that it was going to be a hit and that I wanted my name attached to it in some way for doing what, what I do. <laughs> strategic interaction for the purpose of describing interaction <laughs> yeah i mean i you know that's a, a kind of good illustration because i feel like i mean i spent some years in music criticism in new york and one thing i noticed that i think uh you were kind of more comfortable with being blatant about just now but that is kind of always implicit is that uh when a, a critic champions uh any kind of work or act or artist um they're really tying their fates up with them um both in the short term and for the legacy. Um, I think, you know, if you're somebody who reads uh, reads critics um, and reads kind of old old writers um, who have written about these people, you know, you see the ways in which um, their kind of fortunes rise with what they write about um, and the ways that kind of the critics can both solidify the legacy of the work and vice versa. Um, and there is kind of this element of strategy. And, and similarly, in that recap, I, I found the passage where you mentioned stumping for the assignment. And uh, you say, I stumped for this assignment hardcore all summer because I love this. I love it when you talk in war metaphors with teenage girls because teenage girls invented war. My friend Karen has a t-shirt that says, I survived eighth grade. 
And I think that this is what everyone likes about whether it's Gossip Girl or it's Jane Austen. It's kind of the strategy and the kind of strategic layer of social life um, is just right on the fore and immediately there for us to see. Um, and that's just so fun. And so I think maybe with that, we can kind of jump into this this scene between so Asher and Eric, um, Eric being, you know, Serena's younger brother, and he's in this relationship uh, with actually Jenny's boyfriend at the time. I think both both of the boys are in the closet. Um, and you write, quote, there, I think so they're standing, they're standing right outside St. Jude's um, and kind of kissing in public or, and somebody sees them. You write, Asher tugs softly on the boys St. Jude school tie in the age old manner. We've all done that, every one of us, because it works on everybody. Adjust the tie, adjust the collar. It's subservient at the same time it's controlling. It's intimate, but out of their line of sight. Their eyes can't see what your hands are doing, which is touching them and reminding them that you can see them. How many times in a day does somebody touch your throat? If wolves had neckties, they would do that shit to each other constantly. The boy stands smaller on the other side of him, but you can see rigidity in his pose. You can see him not giving in. And when Asher looks around, furtively afraid and love, and surveys the street and kisses him, you can see the boy give in again, just like he knew he would. Do, do you remember this scene at all? Or do you remember writing about it or where the kind of wolves metaphor comes? Because you keep coming back to it over the course of the season, which is one of my favorite things about your recaps is that, you know, an idea kind of comes out of a scene. And once you kind of put a word on it or a phrase or... Um, it starts coming back and back. You have this idea of Serena and her fever in season one. Um, I'm just curious how that that kind of cycle or process starts. I I think it's a it's a sort of university poisoning of of wanting wanting everything to be literary and everything to be it's sort of the literary equivalent of of people who want everything to be canon in the Marvel universe. I think the idea of lending, reaching back to things that I wrote previously in order to sort of build a language with the with the reader is um, is also a way of making it click like a box, if that makes sense. Yeah. But yeah I think yeah. primarily it's about that relationship and, and about sort of, when it comes down to it, you're reading a recap um, and it's, it's just you and this person on, you know, sitting next to you on the couch and that's it. That's, that's the whole of that utterance is me writing about a show and you reading about a show. And so there's a natural sort of parasocial relationship that comes up out of that and, and feeding into that and playing into that and sort of living there and, and existing with it is I, I, I viewed it as sort of one of my major, um, one of my major goals and, and sort of responsibilities was if, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it. I remember, in fact, like, because they are so long, I remember one time somebody said, um, like, it took me longer to read the recap than it did to watch the episode, <laughs> um, to which, which I responded, read faster. But I think that there was also something like, but the point is that you, that the person did read the recap and that they did spend that time. And that ultimately those callbacks are a way of, of strengthening that bond and of saying, like, I remember you, you remember me, even if I can't be there for the person like physically reading it. Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> for for viewers who don't remember this exact scene well, I mean, what's incredible at this paragraph uh, that I just read is, I mean, we're talking about maybe a seven second interaction. Um, you know, there's maybe a a half second um, shot of some of these kind of hand actions or their kind of body language. It's a blink and you miss it kind of thing, and I totally missed it when I watched the show the first time. And I think what's so cool about your recaps and, and what is really missing from the kind of modern short recap, um, you know, besides just the word count, is that I think a lot of the recaps that I read aren't even worth reading because they really are trying to be this kind of neutral Wikipedia synopsis. And maybe sometimes they'll throw in like some snark or they'll, you know, pull for, you know, their their favorite characters or for what whoever they're shipping on the show. Um, but for the most part, it doesn't kind of fundamentally transform how you actually see the show and watch it, um, which which your recaps really do. 
And I, I really want to hear Crispy's thoughts on, you know, these interactions because he is the, uh, the king of, uh, you know, these microtransactions. He's always looking for them and trying to, to figure out what's going on. But I just want to read this. The first time that I remember you calling back this wolf necktie motif. And it's, I think, near the end of season one where Serena has kind of her fever has started burning. She and Dan have broken up. And so these kind of checks on her that, that she self-imposed to try and keep her in line um, have come undone. And so she's kind of decided to burn with power. And you write, quote, she, uh, she's actually, so this is when she's, she's walking into Constance Billard and she's kind of decided to become, you know, the queen of the school again, um, and maybe take over that power from Blair, who's the reigning queen. You write, Blair's afraid, confused. Serena's eyes track her like a snake. I wasn't feeling well. Serena makes a barely sympathetic moo and hums at her for a moment lovingly, and then takes a scarf from around her head and ties it around Blair's neck. How many times in a day does somebody touch your throat? You poor thing, she says musically. Blair starts to panic. She stammers out that she needs to get her missed assignments, and Serena strokes her hair, just like Georgina did once upon a time. She promised it would feel so good to let it burn. She was right. Blair walks away, touching her hair where Serena singed it, the scarf around her neck like a collar. Chuck appears, grinning. Well, 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 look who's back on top. I wonder how that happened. Serena goes among the people, admiring their necklaces, adjusting their hair, giving her favor and taking it away again. The sun lights her up. She is on fire. Such a beautiful passage. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, that that's absolutely um, amazing. And I feel like um, both of the things that Suspended has uh, has read out for us touch on something that um, you touch on yourself explicitly, Jacob, about like you called it, I think, university poisoning about this need to kind of thematize things and to come back to them. Uh, but but I'm kind of curious um, to hear more about that because I guess I see that as the natural kind of way of all relationships, right? That like, you know, I think the best example of this that I, I'm sure a lot of people have experienced is often someone who's either act like foreign or child of an immigrant will, you know, enter a friend group and they'll have, you know, some specific phrase that they use in a very certain way. And pretty soon it'll affect the entire friend group. And people will use it as this new reference point because that person has kind of given a, a kind of license for this new thing to be able to be used like a tool, right? And generally it's a little bit hard to do that because you have to go out on a limb and someone can kind of reject your use of some kind of new phrase, right? Um, like, what is it in uh, Mean Girls? Stop trying to make whatever a thing. Um, <laughs> and... So I, I think there's, there's kind of always this risk, but when it happens, it becomes kind of the defining point of a relationship. And to me, I feel like the, the general thing about the university poisoning, which I agree is a little bit different, um, is more that it has this kind of grandeur, right? This kind of claim to a grand theory, rather than this claim to it being, like as you describe on, you know, sitting on a couch reading the recap, like this actual like, kind of intimate or parasocial relationship. Um, but it seems to me that the reason we do that also is because we don't really have the vocabulary to describe these things very intently because it's almost taboo to describe them intently, except in very certain situations. And in many ways, I almost see that the main drive for people to couple up is so that they have an excuse to be extremely intimate about extremely petty things. So I'm curious what you think about this kind of general thematized things and make up vocabulary and whether there's a vocabulary vacuum, what do you make of all of it? Or is it just university poisoning? No, I love that. I love the idea of uh, specifically um, the last thing that you said that the excuse of to be in, to be intimate about anything I think is is a really good way to look at uh, a really good way to look at a lot of these sort of things that we do for each other, right? Like you have any number of of infinite possibilities as to how you're going to get from A to B, so. Really, the only way that you can describe yourself is is in getting from A to B, and I think in a situation where, especially in a situation where you know so much of it is about performance, like like recapping is basically watching TV for an audience and being aware of both sides of that conversation. And uh, well, like you said, it's I, I I agree fully with what you said. It's probably not possible to go overboard with that. 
honestly, I think that once once you've given someone sort of an indication that they are seen, um, maybe you can go too far with it. But I, 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 I think generally it's it's the only way that we really can can interact with each other over any kind of long term, right? I, I agree. Um, but I think I have the perfect example from, from your very own writing about what it might mean to take it too far. So let me just parrot back some of your own writing to you. Um, you know, this is about boss, Gossip Girl. You know, be honest with what you're both at. Just do that, okay? I'm not saying it's bad advice, but I think better advice at this point in the game would be to walk before you run. Because as any Upper East Sider can tell you, you have to be honest with yourself before you can be honest with anybody else which hardly anybody on this show has accomplished anyway, or else you're just using them as a sounding board for your own propaganda, which is all Dan and Serena ever do to each other anyway, mainly about what good people they are. And, and to me, what you're getting at here is that there's this way to make these words so floating, so basically utilitarian that they only care about their ends rather than what they're describing, that it becomes a toxic cycle. Uh, what, what do you think about that? Am I, am I interpreting your old writing? Or what do you think, how that think, do you think that relates? I think that's a much more succinct way of saying it. Uh, honestly, I think that's probably a better way to say it, um, just in terms of, of getting across. Yeah, I think I think definitely there's there's a sort of cost-benefit analysis that we do when it comes to how much of ourselves we're willing to we're willing to share, and it, it doesn't always look like the cowardice that it is when you when you restrict what you're what you're willing to share down to those sort of signifiers because well, I don't know. There's 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 a weakness there's a weakness to it that doesn't always present um, necessarily because we are so used to at least using those as a jumping off point, using those as a starting place. And so the toxicity of it, not only do you have plausible deniability, but you also if you're not looking, you know, or if you're consciously not looking, then that's what you've got. Totally. And, and I guess I, I think that last point is um is very relevant to right, how this new reboot ended, right? There's this entire monologue at the end about how symbols can kind of become infinitely powerful and how we can make mm -hmm. any of them what, what they want. And right, there's this <laughs> couple at the end, right? Like one of them is like, oh, yes, uh, you know, you can uh, pretend uh, to see someone else while we're having sex. It doesn't matter to me. Um, and I, I guess I feel like uh, that's that's really present in this in this new reboot, and I'm very curious to see how they'll play that out. Absolutely. There's there's also that line I think in the reboot um, where it's gosh, is her name Julian? Is that the uh, the lead yes. gal? Yeah. Julian, Julian uh, says something like, "You know, you got to be strategic about these things," and she's talking specifically about social media, but. Obviously, that's not where like human social strategy begins and ends um, in, you know, 2004 with Facebook. Um, and I'm curious, Jake, of your thoughts on, you know, as somebody who pays a lot of attention to human beings or at least representations of human beings on TV, which, you know, I, I'd also be curious your thoughts on, you know, how accurate that stuff is and what the kind of relevant distortions are. Like if there are big patterns and the way TV gets people wrong and the way p TV gets people right. Um, Maybe we can start there, and then I'll ask about strategy. Well, I, I, it's interesting that you that you bring up Julian specifically because one thing that I came away with was sort of, uh, and this this may or may not be true. I mean, my track record's pretty good, but the sense that I got was that she's something of a a razor. Like if there's if there's going to be a, a distance between the image that you project and the image that you know to be true. I think where Julian's strength comes from is that she would prefer there be no distance is sort of how I read the character that you, you know, you, you are what you pretend to be and that she would prefer to have her life be, which in, in a way that's sort of the opposite of authentic. Um, in, in which case you yeah. are, your present presentation would be, different from your reality um, and that would be read as a good thing. And I think for her, she's just, she's motivated to this sort of like unreachable ideal of, of having those things actually be isomorphic. Isometric. She's, she's kind of, I mean, she strikes me as like this, this really interesting blend of, 
Belair and Serena, where if Serena kind of can be authentic and effortlessly succeed, um, Blair is always mm-hmm. struggling. Um, and yet, and, and Julian is somehow both right. Like she's busting, just totally busting her buns in order to, uh, in order to succeed and make it, but at the same time gets it all in a sense, um, or at least, you know, in this pilot seems to have it all. She's doing the runway walk that, you know, Blair could only dream of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I vibe with that a lot. And the way I've actually been thinking about her is almost as this um, anti Serena, right? Because I feel like Serena has this kind of deep awareness that like, she's not a good person in some sense. And there's this kind of ugly side to her that she doesn't want to show, right? Like this kind of like, you kind of feel like she's like sucking in her gut in this like emotional, like presentational (laughs) way, right? And I feel like Julian, you know, is aware of that and not at all ashamed of it, but rather like is just actively cutting it out, right? Like she's kind of cutting off parts of herself constantly, like you were saying in this opposite of authentic way. Though I, I find this idea of opposite of authentic kind of fascinating because I guess I personally really empathize with that. And I wonder if it's um, one of the reasons is because I grew up pretty online. Um, and to me, that presentation of the self as like living my presentation of the self felt like the only meaningful definition of authenticity. But, you know, maybe that is something that's changing over the years. I don't know. I think that um, there's there's more of a chance now. I think our, our social media has gotten a little bit less savvy in certain ways. I think that the show sort of nails it as far as like who's who you know the joke about about that facebook is just baby boomers asking each other if they remember when mother boiled the kettle and (laughs) and sort of by having the teachers be the out of touch ones you know operating gossip girl and sort of reaching reaching out from the past to this thing that's mostly mediated in in imagery right and then I mean, they spend so much time on just her look for any given, for any given Instagram story, which which doesn't even exist. So the idea that you can be a little a little less a little less burnished, a little less polished, uh, I think is is really attractive in this sense, because then the challenge becomes having your perfection be, you know, be real. And sort of living, living up to, living up to that, that what we, you know, older folks might think of as a lie. I don't, but it struck me as, as very, as very real. And as even, you know, the, the fact that she does bust her butt and that she is very aware of sort of how hard she's working. I think to me that read also as, as sort of an identity, an identity thing with her, which is that there weren't any black people on the original gossip girl. And I think to, to speak of, and I think that to um, have diversified the cast in such, in, in such a clear way without at least sort of giving a nod to that idea of working, you know, not, not that, not that she said anything like this, but just that idea of working twice as hard to get half as much, or like the idea that Mindy Kaling is somehow super basic when really what, what they're both doing is the equivalent of like, I don't know, the image that comes to mind if I were going to write about it uh, is that like you, when you see a duck gliding through the water, it looks really graceful. But if you were underneath, you would see just how much work mm-hmm. they're doing. That's a great, that's such a great image. Absolutely. You know, it's it's so fascinating that you bring that up, too, because there's only one other place I've ever heard that image reference, which is Stanford students um, uh, describing how people act in grad school. Um, and <laughs> I just, that just strikes me as like so incredibly kind of verified, you know, like I, I've had this real experience of people describing their peers that way. And so that just that's a wonderful image to bring up here. Well, I mean, so, OK, so I think I want to really get back to kind of where we started with this, the the original question of strategy, because I mean, it's so funny that it sort of makes sense. But the fact that, uh, you know, to succeed, you not only have to work hard, but then you have to somehow hide that work. And so, um, you know, there's so much in terms of, you know, authenticity is kind of a, a problematic term, because sometimes it's unclear what it means, um, or whether it's possible. But there is certainly a way in which you have to hide parts of yourself and hide things that you do um, 
in order to kind of, you know, just do as well as possible in the public sphere. And I'm, I'm really curious your thoughts um, on how strategic humans are. You know, some people kind of want maybe the extreme stance um, in like some corners of like evolutionary psychology or something. Um, and I guess you see a bit of this in like psychoanalysis as well, but have kind of this view that there is kind of a, a PR agent or kind of a Machiavellian prince that's kind of always behind the scenes, you know, playing the self-interested game. And uh, so you have like this this prince PR agent who's strategizing, and then you have this public front that's like this PR guy who's always kind of, you know, trying to put the ethical, moral, like pro-social spin on what people are actually up to. And I don't think that this is how everybody is, but I do wonder if that this is kind of a way that you have to work to transcend. I'm thinking of this quote you have from from the Gossip Girls review or recaps. You write, uh, growing up is a process of realizing that you don't ever do anything by accident and thereby getting yourself under control by figuring out the real reasons that motivate you. And this is the perfect illustration of why they were both put into positions where their moments of pettiness came at bad times. And now the world is burning. And there you're talking about Serena's fever. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious how kind of deliberate and strategic um, you think kind of people's unconsciouses are um, and how that plays out. There's just one other kind of line that I'll read. You're right. Uh, this is from very early in season one. S is done on the Upper East Side until B says otherwise. This is, you know, after they're falling out. And that's a great way to follow up from the pilot, where the guilt was just free-flowing and shapeless. Now we see the path of the narrative, at least for this first half of the season. Serena has engineered the love of her life and the boy she just met into a duel for her redemption, because that's the only way she can keep herself in check long enough to change. I'm curious. So when you say something like Serena has engineered, you know, this situation, how (laughs) conscious or unconscious, you know, do you mean that literally? Do you think that uh, there is a part of her that's really scheming to do that? Or do you think to you that's more kind of this nice metaphor to to describe the situation? I think it's there, but I think it's unconscious. I think um, if you were to sit Serena down and try to try to hammer it out with her i don't know that she would be willing to accept that but that's not necessarily uh <laughs> you know that's not necessarily <laughs> the the evidence either but i think that in general we we do set things up more more than more than usual we're strategizing to keep ourselves somewhere and not to uh to change so that that part of it is interesting the idea that she was that she would be using other people to these other, these other, you know, parts of her life to sort of find herself in a new destination. I think that that is less common, um, and that when we do it, ordinarily we we do it in a way that's um, a lot more a lot more Machiavellian and a lot more strategized than the usual way of doing it, which is just to keep things where they are to keep ourselves unhappy in a particular way. <laughs> and, and that brings up something for me, which is. Like on a very general level, how much do you think professed beliefs matter, right? Because I, I think this is actually a key contention when you get down right down to the science of psychology and cognitive science that people struggle with, which is we still measure most things by surveys or by things that are very close to surveys where they measure outcomes of things you would choose, but those are in, still in a laboratory setting. So it's very close to a professed belief. Um, and I guess, you know, I think me and Suspended kind of have this general view of like, well, is that really the whole story? Like how much of the story do you think what someone would profess is and, and how much do you think situation matters there? What, what do you see in professed beliefs? I see strategy. I, first and foremost, I think if when we profess a belief, we're saying at least two things. We're saying the thing that we're saying and we're also saying something about ourselves. And so I think that you're always going to have at least, at least those two voices that you're speaking in. So professed beliefs, even when they're not uh, the whole story, or even when they're inaccurate, or even when the person is lying, you're still getting the truth from one of those voices, right? You're still getting sort of like on the, on yeah. the very basic level of I want you to believe this about me. That's still useful information. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Um, that yeah, even if somebody doesn't doesn't necessarily believe the content, um, this either desire to kind of show group loyalty or something. I mean, and I think even sometimes we recognize this that there are kind of loyalty tests between friends, especially in a show like Gossip Girl. They're probably a little more subtle and um, less cruel uh, in the real world. 
um, among actual friends. Um, but, uh, you know, just parts where, you know, you know, little Jenny Humphrey or something is, is asked to pay lip service in a way that the sincerity of her professed belief doesn't really matter to Blair. Blair doesn't really care if she actually, Jenny believes X, Y, or Z. What she cares is that one, Jenny is willing to profess this publicly. Um, and two, that her willingness to profess it publicly, even if she doesn't believe it, shows loyalty to Blair. And that's really right. what the kind of what's being communicated by it. And and one kind of interesting example, right? Like you're, you're bringing up what would we do in real life, I think here is, you know, maybe a year or two ago, um, uh, I had someone over for Thanksgiving dinner who I didn't know that well. He was a friend of a friend. And someone asked her, uh, oh, what are some movies you've enjoyed this year? And she, I straight up just said, uh, what are some movies you've enjoyed this year? And it felt so guarded, right? Because implicitly, there was this test of we wanted her to be willing to be vulnerable with us. And we'd kind of been talking before that she'd been a little bit quiet. Um, but she kind of had this interpretation, or at least it felt like she had this interpretation that what movies she liked was going to be kind of a test of fit. Um, yeah. And she had kind of decided to abnegate from that. But by doing so, that was a that was a move there, right? And she was like, not just saying, oh, I don't know. She was also saying, I- I'm not going to play that game, right? Um, and, and I feel like that's like a perfect example. Where it's, it's not super Machiavellian, but it is um, It is clearly kind of this answer to that, the secondary question we were asking. I think, I mean, that's that's the, I think the complex thing about, you know, when we call these things Machiavellian, um, maybe there's this implication of being on the offensive, but so much of our social strategy also seems to be about, you know, defending ourselves from vulnerability or from the possibility of attack. I think maybe the other interesting thing that, that you kind of see in the new Gossip Girl episode is that people really don't like it when strategy comes to the forefront and they feel like they're being manipulated or played, uh, understandably. Right. Um, I think there's that scene, right, where it comes out that Julian has kind of arranged this whole performance of, you know, their new friendship with, uh, you know, her sister and, and it really blows up on her. Uh, and I guess I wonder what y'all think about this. To me, that's one of the reasons for that is there is a very decided, like, and, and mutually defined meta level of presentation, right? The Instagram story, everyone knows it's manipulated in order to look good. That's the accepted story. And so I feel like my reading of that is, it's allowing Instagram level to, to seep into face-to-face level in a way that makes people uncomfortable. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think <clears throat> you're collapsing the images in a way that is, that is painful. And, the, and there's a way in which the, the people who you've brought into your sort of, your, your sort of plan and that you've staged in that way and that you've styled in that way that you're talking about, uh, it feels foolish. Like I always, I always thought, the worst part about getting broken up with or the worst part about getting dumped is just that you had no idea and you were just going through your day and the this this and it turned out that that whole day was falsified by the fact that you didn't have all the information and so i thought it was really interesting that they did made such a point of hammering that home now is it is it going to be is that going to be julian's lesson that she keeps learning in which case the show is definitely making a point about about sort of our scheming and our strategizing and where and where it gets you because that would be remarkably different from and and not great that's sort of a dan humphrey vibe but uh the reasons that it's gross are the reasons that zoya blows up at the end because i honestly i felt the i felt the 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 final showdown sort of mechanism of of setting them at each other's throats felt a little bit contrived as much as I was into it. And I agreed with it on a story level. It felt like the circumstances were a little bit, were a little bit plastic and a little bit hard to, hard to follow up with. So you just have to go with that feeling. And, and the feeling in this case is that she didn't like being stage managed any more than the sort of, than the friends did any more than any of us really would. I do think that the show's, you know, has, has something to say about that. My fear is that it has too much to say about that rather than being one aspect of the character. Right. I totally agree with that. And actually, I, th- that that showdown that you mentioned, I, I had a lot, I, I did a Twitter thread about this, and that was definitely the part that broke down for me after the show took off, after the first 15 minutes, which was interesting because, you know, you say like it works for the story, but I, I would say it works even further than that. I think they're describing a real philosophy about how the concept of winning has changed, right? Where in Gossip Girl, there is this actual ideas of things you want to win. You want to get into an Ivy League. You want to have the right wife. You want to have the money and the endowment. You need all of these things. 
Whereas what Julian has on her side is this amorphous blob of people who follow her, right? Um, and the kind of like presentation aura that that gives. Um, and so I think, you know, it was this real battle of um, Zoya basically saying, even though you're this like great manipulator, you kind of haven't seen how much winning is actually changing. Um, and yet, to me, the kind of weakness of it was, I really just think we don't, as a like, you know, kind of amorphous American society, have vocabulary to describe this new way of winning, right? We have vocabulary to traverse it and to talk about followers and to talk about influence. But I don't think we've like, kind of describe the mechanisms the way we can talk about chess, you know, which is a classic metaphor for kind of previous kinds of manipulation. So I kind of felt like it was just almost not the writer's fault that there wasn't a way to do that right now. But I'm curious if you disagree. <laughs> no, no, I, I that, that that is very much how I feel. I think it would be impossible to describe the actual stakes. I think that's a great way, a great way to look at it. Crispy, do you see this? I mean, there's that concept in machine learning of intrinsic empowerment, which is like, if you don't know um, exactly what you're optimizing for um, in a certain situation, then what you really want is to just have the most possibilities open to you, to just have the most agency possible. Um, is this kind of how you think of this kind of amorphous clout that Julian's carrying around with her? As She doesn't actually know what she's trying to accomplish yet, but she is empowered if she wanted to. Is that sort of right or am I misunderstanding? No, I think that's a great point. And it's funny because I'm usually very hesitant to bring up machine learning um, metaphors um, because I'm just so nervous that we kind of are misreading them. But I think that is a perfect example of where that's really true. Um, and I called it, you know, in, in my thread, I called it leverage. But I think you're exactly right, which it's it's the ability to finally manipulate different parts of your environment, right? And Julian is just optimizing for continued manipulation. And I think the reason for that that is in general across social media influencers now is uncertainty is super high. So Instagram could be gone in five years, right? Like not gone, gone probably, but maybe it's just not that important the way, you know, Twitter is mostly important for older people in a lot of ways. Um, and so I think there is this constant understanding that whatever you're building your platform on does not matter that much. What matters is the people who are going to participate and whether they'll follow you, whether they have enough attachment to you to continue following you. And a big part of that is just basically getting big enough and making sure you have a core people, a group of people who are extremely addicted to you. And <laughs> you know, I think this is actually somewhere where I really think we should do some comparisons to other countries. Because for instance, I would say um, places like China and Korea have these really interesting fan cultures that are, in my view, much, much more intense than, than here, even though fan cultures now I'd say are more intense than they were in America 10 years ago, um, where there are these things called fan armies and you know, people are kind of like, they basically decide that their like life mission is to defend a certain idol and they treat it as a job. They donate money to these organizations. They have actual hierarchies. They can get fired. They organize all of these crazy things. They have buildings. They have, you know, societies. Um, <laughs> and I think in America, it's much more amorphous. And that amorphous is exactly what drives this kind of leveraging behavior because you really don't know how the game is going to shift. So you just need as much power as you can for when anything shifts over to a new phase. And of course, as you know, Blair would be the first to remind Jenny, the flip side to having this kind of clout and people kind of having this asymmetric gaze where everyone's looking at you. Um, the flip side, of course, is that everyone's also kind of policing you and ready to throw you under the rug. I think, you know, in an early episode when she's just first kind of allying with Jenny or vice versa, um, she she warns Jenny as much, you know, if you want to play this game and live in this world, people are going to talk. We've we've kind of done we've gone off on a tangent here from where we were, but I want to just quickly jump back to the bit about this this reality shift where you kind of, you know, uh, Julian's friends realize she's been manipulating them or there's kind of this breakup and you don't you know, you went through your whole day without knowing because there's a great passage uh, from your recap where you're chatting about Dan and Serena. And you just put it so well, uh, Serena, I think, has just gone on a bit of a, a bender, if I recall correctly. I think this is, it's uh, my, my passage here is out of context, but if I remember correctly, this is after the Serena-Georgina bender from the end of season one. And, you know, I think Dan and Serena's relationship has just fallen apart. And you're right. Dan's response is confused sadness in combination with the easygoing acceptance that could have led to greater heights of pleasure than he might have imagined if he didn't suck so greatly. It's more interesting than that, though, because in all three stories tonight, you have a rug pull about the relationship. You thought it was like this, but it's actually like that. 
You thought I liked you, trusted you, loved you. You thought we were on a team together forever. You thought I enjoyed your company. You thought nothing would come between us. The most painful thing about a breakup or a momentary shame or the embarrassment of getting played or finding out the game behind the game is feeling like an asshole. You were going along like everything was fine and they knew it wasn't fine. They lived in the real world and you didn't. When people scream and yell about getting played or cheating on or getting cheated on, it's not pride. Nothing like that. It's pain and it's fear. The world wrenching itself around you from one position to another. Like finding out the floor is the ceiling and always has been. That sickening coyote drop in your stomach just before you go into free fall. The world changes around you. Its angles and symmetry force themselves into new and unfamiliar shapes. And it's terrifying and sickening. Deception is betrayal less on the emotional level than an ontological one. And I just, I mean, we've kind of already talked about, you know, these dynamics, but just to to make a quote about the writing itself. I mean, I love that. Um, I think your writing here really kind of oscillates between, I don't know, the quote unquote, like language of every day, language of, you know, the people, the language that, you know, just normal people used to talk to each other about their lives, you know. You know, I thought we were on a team together. You know, I thought you loved me um, and you didn't. Um, and now I feel like an asshole. And this kind of idea of like an ontological shift. I mean, you're kind of oscillating between like kind of this deep idea about um, your perception of the world, um, but you're defending it or or explicating it or exploring this very philosophical idea about like our contact with reality and feeling like the rug is pulled under us. One thing I'd really like to hear from you is something, you know, we've been talking about you and uh, what you think of some of our ideas, because I think we both read your work um, and said, wow, you know, me and Suspended are, and a bunch of us at the Inexact Sciences are trying to figure out how to invent a new vocabulary for the games people play so we can actually study them. Because we feel like a lot of disciplines kind of have, you know, something to say about this psychology, cognitive science, anthropology, linguistics but are kind of taking this weird piece of the pie and then saying, this is kind of enough and everyone else can deal with whatever, you know, doesn't, um, doesn't fit my lens on this. Um, and I guess what we feel is that we need to just go to examples that uh, people kind of do see themselves in, um, whether they be fictional or real, and kind of try to take those apart. Um, and I think we're both really inspired by basically your, your narrativization of, of, these, of these micro games. But I think there's also this question of if we just kind of go and stamp collect all of these microgames, kind of what does it add up to? Um, and, and how do we actually end up with a consistent vocabulary? Will these games be very different in 20 years? I kind of feel like they won't be that different um, because I think, you know, we see the same, some of the same games in Jane Austen. But I'm curious about, like, how you view this work in a historical perspective and, and kind of how you think it relates to people who are, you know, maybe trying to quote, scientifically understand um, uh, understand these games, which I don't think anyone really is trying to scientifically understand them, but th- there is this hope that we can bridge the gap. There's a, there's a quote, I cannot remember who said it now that I'm, but the, the first thing that I think of with Gossip Girl, and certainly the, when I was watching the, um, this first episode of the new reboot, to the effect that a work or a novel, it might have even said a novel, but a work is only as valuable as it, as it has something to teach you about survival. And that is, uh, that is sort of, that was my last, my last take on, on Gossip Girl as a whole was just that what we have been doing is a seven year journey in order to learn something about survival. So I would say in terms of what you're, what you're saying there's a real, there's an irreducible human component to all of the games that, that you, like that it's not just stamp collecting because each one of those branches out into something, into a context and a meaning that is more than the sum of just those parts. Totally. No, I totally agree with that. I guess a big question in my mind, um, and maybe this is going off the deep end a little bit, is I think you know, that has only really been captured in passive media where you watch as a viewer. And it's somewhat surprising to me um, that it hasn't been captured at really almost at all in video games. There are, I, you could make the case for MMORPGs kind of having certain social dynamics, but I would say that a lot of the social dynamics there are basically like distorted and etiolated into the space of the game rather than having any kind of presentation of the, the social dynamics that we would go about in everyday life. Um, 
And I, yeah, I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about like why this has remained something in the passive media. And I, I personally have hopes that it won't, but, uh, but if you have any thoughts on kind of where the video games or the future of video games or the future of media kind of stands here. <laughs> Teddy, uh, I do think that there's a place for, I don't think it's that far away. I think that in certain ways where, where the, uh, where the industry, whether it's video games or other kind of media, is sort of blindly striking out for, um, really for what, what you're talking about. That wh like when Bioware decided they were going to do games as a service and they brought Anthem, and Anthem was supposed to be this sort of hybrid of an MMORPG and, and a regular Bioware game. And it was, <clears throat> I think... Right now, it's not that we're not there yet. It's that they haven't found the vocabulary for it yet, and and they haven't found. Um, it's not for lack of trying, because <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of the mistakes and the missteps and a lot of the developments, I think honestly are 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 toward a space in 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 which what you're describing is is normal, and we're we just not there yet. I totally agree with that, and I'll just make a, one recommendation. If you if you haven't played it, I really recommend you play Disco Elysium, which I think is the closest thing to a narrative game that I've I've encountered thus far. Sweet! I just bought that on Stadia. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's amazing! I haven't played it. How fun! Oh, yeah. I think uh, I I need to play it as well. I'll be visiting Crispy in a few days, um, and uh, looking forward to to firing up. What you got it on Switch or PC? It's not released for Switch yet, so we're, we're okay. going to play it on my laptop. All right. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess you know, I uh, you know, before we call it, uh, I'd love to ask you, uh, you know, one more kind of question if you have the time. Um, you have this great line too. You're talking about uh, early in in Jenny and Blair's alliance uh, before you know Jenny kind of backstabs Blair. Uh, if Jenny came there. And this is so Jenny just showed up actually at uh, Blair's house. This is after the Chuck Bass assault scene of the pilot. And Jenny is coming to fish for information as to whether, you know, Chuck has been talking about her. Um, and she just showed up at, at Blair's penthouse. And you're right. If Jenny came there looking to use B for a tool, then that means she's in the game. And if she's in the game, then that means she is a tool in turn. If Blair's going to start a war, she needs soldiers. And here's one offering itself up on a platter with no allegiances and hunger so deep she'd give herself up to the bass again. Jenny is maybe too young to understand the terms, but hungry enough to make a deal. Now, Jenny here, clearly her game in season one is social climbing. Um, I think the other kind of maybe obvious game in season one is that Serena is trying to get herself under control, essentially. I think that's a great phrase you use for her. Um, mm -hmm. what, are, what are the other games that you think people are playing in this? You know, what, what's Dan's game? What's Nate's game? What, what, what do you think they're looking for? And, and what's the kind of system of, I don't know, incentives that they're playing within? <laughs> well, Dan's a fun one because on the one hand, uh, he's he's got something to prove about his own worth and that for whatever reason he has located that worth in Serena and in the getting of Serena. I feel like there's, mm. there's a certain nice guy aspect to um, a lot of what he does that if you don't know someone and, and later on, well, if you don't know someone and you, and you turn them into this sort of symbol, you're already acting shady and you know, they tried to make it later on that, that he had like, she had been nice to him at a party or something, but still right. it's just, it's it, those, those sort of, the sort of romantic um, quests come, come off really not great. And it is a funny thing to see the, the breakdown in fandom and in the, and then the, like, for example, the young women who uh, were part of this shows, you know, targeted demographic, just not being impressed with Dan until until Blair later. Dan and Blair, you know, were, was was quite a phenomenon. But Dan's game is radically reinvented by the end of the series and the, the canonical end of of uh, our last iteration of Gossip Girl. When it's no spoiler, but uh, the, <laughs> his game becomes something completely different, and um, and in a lot of ways. 
incomprehensible. So you have the show sort of, you know, redefining itself in certain ways to reach a certain conclusion, but it does make, in particular, Dan's characterization in the first season uh, less explicable, but somehow even more offensive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, <laughs> that that has always always struck me. I mean, I think as a, as I think a lot of people, um, there are always jokes about you know the show you the new uh, Penn Badgley I think Netflix series, yeah, where you know he's like this stalker murderer. Um, it's kind of you know it's like a Gossip Girl spinoff in the alternate reality where you know Gossip Girl took took his creepiness a little for, uh, more seriously because it is definitely strange that you know he has two I think in high school two very brief encounters with her one in which. She is, you know, blackout drunk on Thanksgiving and right. I don't know, some other minor encounter. And this is enough for him to develop, you know, a lifelong obsession. Kind of kind of sus. Uh, one follow up to that before before we say our ideas that I'll just say, because it strikes me so much. And this is something I always try to convince suspended of. I guess I, I really struck with what you said about survival. And I think it's actually very related um, to, to how we should think about Dan. So I have a contention about these kinds of shows in general, which, uh, you know, a friend of mine calls uh, modern palace plots, which is that the fundamental engine that drives these games of like these media that's about strategic interaction is the narrative of game meets game. And that's kind of always what we're looking for. We're looking for all of these microcosms where two people, whether it's contextual or absolute, suddenly become evenly matched. And we're excited to see how they break the symmetry. Mm-hmm. Scorpius mm-hmm. and John and Farscape. Yeah, totally. I love it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and yeah, I, any final thoughts suspended? No, I mean, uh, you know, I could keep reading quotes I love from Jacob's uh, <laughs> recaps all day, so I won't, won't keep you two and I won't keep listeners, but uh, it, it has been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much. I was really excited to talk to you guys. Uh, so I hope that I hope that we had we had a, a good time. I certainly did. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. It, it was uh, yeah. The pleasure is all ours. Indeed. Thanks so much, Jacob. It was nice to meet you. <laughs>